morning. Uh, raise your hand, and this is not a metaphorical raise your hand. Actually, raise your hand if you remember the day you got your driver's license. Who here went and got their driver's license the day they were eligible to get their driver's license? Or within like three days if it was a weekend or whatever, right? I will tell you, I, I vividly remember, like it was yesterday, the first day that I had my, my drive, not the permit, not the thing where you have to drive with mom in the car or somebody who's, you know, 20 or whatever, but the day you had your, your full license and you come home and what's the first thing you say to mom and dad? You say, I want to go on a drive and you get in that car and you drive and it's just you. You don't even want friends in there, just you. I don't know that there's been a day, other than maybe when I came to know Christ, that I have felt so free, right? I remember sitting there, and, and my mom's here. I don't know where she's sitting somewhere. But I remember driving down the road, and, and the, this thought entered my head. This is how twisted I was in high school. I thought, you know, I have enough gas. Like, I could, I could like, be in California in three days. Like, I have the means to legally without breaking any laws other than my house's laws, driving across, I could, I could just, like, go anywhere. I remember thinking, how freeing is that? I can go wherever I want within, you know, places that don't need planes or boats. But there's the freedom that came with it. And I'll never forget, I, the first car I had was a 1992 Silver Mercury Topaz. It was a biohazard in the trunk when I bought it. It had to be, like, cleaned out, had some mold and stuff going on. And I cleaned it out. It had, it had power windows that didn't work. Right, so they would, they would either not go down or they'd go down and then not go back up. So I just stopped trying because I was afraid of getting caught in the rain or snow or whatever. So they just, I just never had them. It didn't have AC, so you know, you'd, every once in a while I just had a light. You open the door and hope that you know, you get some air coming through. But it had those seat belts, you know, which parents love, the auto seat belts, where like, it goes like, you know, and then you shut the door and it like, buckles you automatically so you never had to buckle. I'm sure, like parents, we should just have all cars have that because parents would love that. But it had that, you know, the automatic safety feature, and I loved that car. And man, I got on the road, and it was freeing, and I would just drive. Like, I would work to pay for gas just to drive around, because it was such a nice, the joy of the open road. You get on the highway, and you go just a little faster than you should. Um, I never sped. That's a lie. I did. Right? But, but what a beautiful, freeing thing it was. Last week, when I wasn't here, we went on vacation, and we loaded up our Honda Pilot, to go out to Indiana Dunes to spend some time on Lake Michigan, and we, we loaded all the stuff up for ourselves and the kids and, and headed out five hours of open road and highway. I gotta tell you, it didn't feel as freeing <laughs> as it used to. Like the exhilaration of, you know, the wind in your hair or the lack of wind because I couldn't open my window, it just wasn't there. And it's a nicer car than I had when I was in high school. So even, even driving like a 10 times, it just, it's not the same kind of freedom. You know, you have children screaming in the back. As a matter of fact, I had my, asked my wife to, to drive uh, as we were leaving to go on vacation so that I could get some things done before we got there and didn't have to worry about it once we were on our trip. It's different. So this thing that was once exhilarating and fresh and new, today driving, like, I mean, I don't hate it. I don't get excited about it. Right? If I got to go to like a drag strip and test drive my dream car or whatever, that'd be fun. But just every day, like, I don't even think about driving anymore as an exhilarating thing. I just do it because I have to. It's become monotonous and mundane. Right? 
I think sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, our faith can be kind of like that. When we become a Christian, when we first understand the gospel, when it consumes us and Christ enters our hearts through the Holy Spirit and we, we understand and we see for the first time there's a newness and an excitement, right? I remember being a new Christian and just having to like tell everybody I could about it, uh, just naturally. I didn't have to try. I didn't have to do anything weird. It wasn't like a fear thing. I just, this is awesome and everybody needs to know. And you're just, you're just glowing like almost like on your wedding day, right? But if we're honest, over the years, it can become kind of monotonous, it just kind of exists now. Right? It's like a car, but not like, like, a, like a cool car, like a Tesla Roadster or something, like a minivan. Right? It's practical. It's good for the family. You know, it has navigation <laughs> built in, but it's not going to do zero to 60 in three seconds or less. Right? Sometimes our faith can feel that way. And, and as a matter of fact, if you feel that way, you're not alone. Right? What happens is we start to feel that way and maybe guilt starts to creep in. But you are not alone in that. Most of us at some times have that kind of feeling about our faith. And it might be a year in, it might be seven years in. It might be that maybe you just say, I felt that way for the last 20 years and never really thought about it. Right? But our text this morning addresses not just an individual, but a whole church that in some ways began to feel that way. Whether you or feel that way or just the whole church feels that way or you, maybe you feel like our church is that way or at some point was that way or could be heading that way. But this morning as we look at our text, we're going to see how we can move from feeling this kind of sluggish, mundane apathy to a faith life that is exhilarating again. Because that's what we want. And we'll examine some of those answers in our text in the book of Revelation. For the next seven weeks, we are going to be in the book of Revelation. Now... Before you panic, do not be scared. I have chosen the one section of Revelation that actually makes sense for the next seven weeks. Right? I like to bite off challenges and things, you know. Like when I preached Psalms, I'm not really, Psalms aren't really my familiarity. So I liked, but in my first year to bite off the book of Revelation as a whole is something I'm even not willing to do. You know, maybe year two or three or four. I promise you, if I'm here for the next ten years, we'll do a sermon series on all of Revelation. And we'll unpack all of the amillennialism and dispensationalism and pre and all those fun things. But we're going to stay so far away from that over the next seven weeks. And we're going to focus on just a small section at the beginning. Because before Revelation gets weird, there's the prologue in chapter 1. And then in chapters 2 and 3, there are letters to churches. And our series is called Seven Words to the Church Today because in Revelation there are seven letters written to seven named specific churches. Right? And so we're going to spend some time each week looking at each of those churches and trying to decipher as the Lord speaks to that individual church, he also speaks to us and see what we might be able to glean from that. Right? Just a little bit of background before we do that. The book of Revelation is called that because it is exactly that, a revelation from God. Maybe you've never opened the book of Revelation because you've heard it's scary and it terrifies you, and that's okay. But all it is is a revelation of what is to come from God to John. The author is identified as John. There's no question it's John because John himself references himself as the author at least three different times in the first chapter alone. The question is, which John? And scholars all kind of think for the predominant part, that we're talking about John, the, 
the disciple, the apostle, the one who wrote the Gospel of John. But we don't know that. As a matter of fact, there are some slight textual evidences inside and outside the book of Revelation that suggest that it might have been a different John. But, but generally, our best guess is that the Gospel writer John also was the one that wrote Revelation. Right? Uh, the date of it is about 8196 AD. It's the reign of Domitian. That's the consensus of the date. There's a little bit of debate, but probably about 90% of people would, would line up with that date. So it's just about, it's a little less than 100 years after Christ came and was crucified and risen, give or take, or about 60 years, because 33 AD, right? He didn't die as a baby. So we, we have a little bit of time. You know, we have maybe a generation or so has passed. Uh, those folks who were disciples are still alive, but they're getting really old. And you have people that are starting to forget, like the churches have established, they've been running for decades, and we're entering some forgetfulness. We're starting to see witnesses kind of die off, right? And so we're in that phase as a church where the forgetfulness and the monotony has begun to set in. The book of Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. And that's a scary term, but it's, it's really nothing to be afraid of. All it means is, is a, a literature type that concerns itself with end times. Um, author Robert Mounts actually puts it really well. He says, apocalyptic literature is a divine disclosure, so a divine, a godly disclosure, revelation, usually through some kind of divine intermediary, so an angel or a God speaks himself, right? And it's a thing in which God promises to bring times of trouble to an end. Like when we think apocalypse, we think of movies where everything goes to bits, Right? But apocalyptic literature in scripture is a, a good thing. It's the Lord's promise to in some way bring some turmoil, something not great, to a grand, great conclusion. And so it is about the end times, but it's a positive examination of what God promises that he will do, revealed directly in a divine way. And so that's what we have. That's what we have in the prologue in chapter 1. I'm just going to give you a small sampling of it. We don't want to read the whole thing just for time's sake. But here's the first couple of verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. There you go. He's the author. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. I feel kind of good about that because I'm reading it out loud right now. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then later in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos, so here we have the writing location, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And so that's what John does. He's exiled on this island. Patmos was, an, uh, was a gross place to be. It was very rocky and sunny and disgusting. You were there. You were outside. You were probably getting sunburned. It was a really, really not fun place to be. It's a place where Rome would send some of its worst offending prisoners, and it was on an island to be kind of a maximum security facility. And so John is there, oddly enough, having not really committed some grand crime, but maybe something minor that doesn't deserve for him to be there. But we, we can assume that the Romans put him there to get him away from places where he could effectively share the gospel. 
He's not on Patmos because what he did is egregious. He's on Patmos so that he can't talk to anybody else anymore because his gospel sharing is doing damage. And so the Romans want to shut him up. And that's why they put him there. All right? And so John is there and he has this vision and God tells him, write this stuff down that you see. But before he brings the vision, he literally dictates these seven letters. Before we get into them, one, one quick kind of thing. Why these churches? Why would it be seven letters to seven churches? Seven is a number of perfection in, in Scripture. We, we use it a lot in communicating perfect things. We have three, we have seven, we have twelve, you know, the Trinity and all those things. Those are all numbers that mean something in the Hebrew, Hebrew culture. But seven churches specifically, if you were to put them on a map, you would get a nice little route circle coming back to itself of all of the geographical, geographical area of where the gospel of Christ was being shared and churches were, were in existence. And so why these seven? Probably because they were hubs. The letters wouldn't have stayed there. They would have continued to be carried on. And so it would get, get it to Ephesus and then get it to Smyrna and then get it to Pergamum. And, and from there, they're going to get it to all the small little places that are outskirts of those larger things. They were probably the established larger churches. We know that because most of the towns we can look at and go, yeah, that's where a larger established church of Christ might, might be running. And so the letters, even though they likely functioned as, as a letter to the individual church, they were more than just that. And we have two reasons to believe that we should hear these letters as Stowe Presbyterian Church written to us, not just to a church back then. And the two reasons are this. Number one, all of the letters were included in the, the sending to all the churches. So they weren't cover letters of the book of Revelation and Ephesus gets its own and Smyrna gets its own. They were all authored together and sent. So the church of Ephesus would have read the letters of all the other churches as well and heeded those words. Like they, were, they were brought to those churches as a cohesive, singular text to be studied, to be understood, to be listened to, and to be obeyed. And second, if we go to a, some documents that are outside of Scripture, there's a document called the Muratorian Fragment. It's this list of New Testament books that's really, really old. And it kind of tells us what were the, the books that the Christians at the time accepted to be, like, actually New Testament or not. And in there, there's some, some language. And one of the languages is this. It says, John, in Revelation, John writes to seven churches, yet speaks to all. And so we have some, some documentation throughout history that suggests that these are letters that we all should pay attention to. And so we're going to look at seven letters over the next seven weeks. That's my long-winded Revelation intro. You won't have to suffer through it again for six more weeks. You're welcome. So as we get into it, the first church we write is the church of Ephesus. And so as we stand together, uh, because we stand in reverence and awe and respect of the word of God, let's do that. Let's stand as we hear from God's holy word in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, 
and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. When God says he hates something in scripture, we should pay attention. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. So it starts out to the angel of the seven churches, and, and, and it talks about God who, who holds the, 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 you know, the stars and walks among the lampstands. You might ask yourself, what's that's that all about? At the very end of chapter 1, uh, you know, one of the beautiful things about Revelation is sometimes God just says what he means. And he says, by the way, if you're wondering what the stars and the lampstands are, the stars are the angels of the church... Right? And we have some guesses as to what that might mean. It might be the leader of that church. It might be an actual angelic figure, whatever it is. And the, the, the lamps themselves are the churches. So when he says the lamp, he's talking, it's a, it's a metaphorical way of talking about each individual church. So there's seven lamps, and they represent the seven churches that are being sent to. And so later on when we get into the whole removal of the lampstand thing, that'll make a little bit more sense, right? The letter opens by seeing Christ walk through and among the lampstands and by holding the stars in his hand. And it signifies that that Christ is over, under, within, and present within the life of the churches that are existing at that time and even still today. This this idea, this picture that he paints is a reminder of who's in charge. As he walks among them, it signifies that, that Christ sees the churches and lives among them and walks among them and, and, and carries them and, and holds them with presence and power. Right? So the letter starts in that way. Listen to that angel. The words of him, who, who are we listening to here? The one who holds the angels in his hands and who walks among all of you. Right? In power and in might and in glory. So you better listen. Because this isn't John writing. This is God writing. And so what we're told in that one little verse in the beginning is the words that are going to the churches aren't John's interpretation of what Jesus said. They are the words of Christ himself. This is Jesus, the Son of God, speaking directly to Ephesus and the other churches and through them to us. So that scripture that we just stood and heard is God's direct verbatim voice to you individually and corporately, as the body of Christ. After he establishes this this authority, he starts with the good. I I love the way that Jesus phrases a lot of these letters. They're what we call a compliment sandwich. If you ever have to critique somebody, right, what are you supposed to do? You find some compliment, then you throw in the critique, and then some more compliment, and you hope that it just kind of gets listened to but lost in the shuffle. And so Jesus does that. He starts with the good, he gives them some bad, and then he gives them some good. And, And the things that he starts with are not just things that are good about them, but he starts by saying this. He phrases it this way, both in verse 2 and 3. I know your works 
and I know you're enduring. So Jesus starts by acknowledging to them and making sure they understand, I know you deeply and intimately and well. And he would say the same thing to us. Jesus would say, still prez, I know you. The struggles you have, I know them. The fact that you can't hire people right now because the market stinks, I know that. The fact that you sitting four rows back, whatever, in that pew are weary and tired, I know. I know the strengths of your leadership and its deficiencies. I know, I know you more deeply than you know yourself. I know everything about you that there is to know. And so it's not just a, hey, here's the things you're doing well. He's saying, I know you and what you do well. And then he lists a few things that they do well. And here's what he says. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So the first thing he says is, I know your works and your toil. Right? The Ephesian church, the church in Ephesus, is a hard-working church. When the road gets hard, they work harder. They know how to pick up their boots and put them on and get the gloves and go to work. They're not afraid of a little hard work. Man, this is a hard-working church. And secondly, they have a patient endurance. Not only are they hard-working, but the Ephesian church is, is, is marked by perseverance. They're a church that holds, holds steady. Right? They have overcome and they continue to overcome and be in the midst of hardship and persecution. And they're, they're, they're going through that really well. They're holding strong. They're not wavering. They're not faltering. The third thing he says, so he's, they have work, they're hardworking, they're endurance, and they're persevering. Third, they are orthodox. Right? Orthodox. They believe the good stuff. They have the right doctrine. That's a good thing. Right? We should care about right doctrine. We should care that we are a church, or that Ephesus had a church that took the word of God seriously over and above and beyond the culture at the time and what they said was good or right or just or true. And so they are orthodox. They don't put up with falsehood in the Ephesian church. As a matter of fact, the city of Ephesus was full of false teaching. It was a cultural hub. There was all kinds of ideas that came through. There were, there were all kinds of fake apostles and teachers who came through trying to get the church to accept and buy into their own ideas. And the Ephesian church, God says, said no. They wouldn't deal with it. They rigorously tested their people, their teachers, their apostles, and they found those to be false, and they booted them, and they said, not in my house. Here we will have scripture reign supreme, and only truth will be allowed to be spoken. So they're great at that. Really, really great. Today, we're part of a church that, that does that. We're part of a denomination that does that. I can tell you from experience, because within the last year, I suffered through the exams. I can tell you that we are a denomination that tests and rigorously walks the people that get to teach through a process. And man, if you come out the other, other end of it, you may not be a great preacher, but you're going to be an orthodox preacher. Right? You, I may bore you to tears, but, but you, can, you can know that when you come into this church, that the truth of the gospel and of scripture is what stands high and is proclaimed. And so we, we would consider ourselves to be also a, a reformed, a traditional, a Bible-believing, orthodox church. 
And so we stand with the Ephesians in that. And God commends them for it. And then fourth, he commends them again for their steadfastness. And he says, in the midst of bearing suffering for Christ, they aren't waving. Right? He acknowledges, listen, I know that you're struggling because of me. And I get it. And I'm going to commend you for having the steadfastness. And so this sounds like a really great church to me, at least. Right? If I ever moved and I wasn't a pastor and I'd be looking for a church, what are the, some of the things I'd want to see? I want to go in and I want to see, man, are they preaching the word of God faithfully, right? And how are the church operating under pressure? Like when life gets hard and the culture comes at them, are they holding fast or are they going to reject the gospel and, and waver and throw in the towel? And if I could find a church that's gospel-believing and steadfast, man, sign me up. You almost might think, that's all I need. Maybe good coffee, right? But then God continues in verse 4. And he has the phrase that he uses in almost every one of the letters that we're going to read. He says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. The singular thing. You've got all the right beliefs. You've got all the right practices. You're working hard. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're holding fast. You're not wavering. But, but, but listen, you have abandoned the love that you first had. Right? And look closely. When you read it, you have abandoned the love you had at first. It signifies that there was a point where they had this love. It wasn't just a, you're a bunch of grumps who don't know what love even is. You abandoned the love that you once had. You were doing this one time early on. You had it right. You know how to, how to keep this first love. You know how to do it. You know how to be a church that is loving towards the world around you and towards one another to live in that kind of joyful, passionate community of love and care. You know how to do it because you once had it, but you have abandoned it since. You no longer have the love that you have. And it would seem like the church has lost its passion, has lost its fervor, has lost, some would say, its flavor. It's doing the right stuff, but in some ways the church is probably going through the motions in a way. And so he won't let them stand for it. And he says that I have this against you. And for God to say, hey, I have this against you. Imagine if the Lord showed up at your house in a vision and looked at you and said, you're doing these things great, but I have this against you. And then named something. You would be like, oh man, I'll work on that. You wouldn't say, but what about all the great stuff that you just, right? The Lord speaks and says, I have this against you. Whew, we better listen, right? And so this is a big thing. Now, maybe you feel like this, as we talked about. Maybe you're the minivan and not the Tesla. Maybe you feel personally like that, or you feel that way about our church. In truth, it's really easy for churches, especially of a Reformed background, to start to feel this way. It's not uncommon at all. One of the, the Reformation did great things, but one of the things that happened is we became so concerned about making sure that our doctrine was right that our practice of the gospel culture began to suffer. And unfortunately, you know, I wouldn't trade it for the world because Reformed thinking and orthodoxy and being right about scripture and things are very important things. But unfortunately, it becomes very easy to fall into this pattern where we just, we're so, we're so happy that we're a church that holds the Bible high and preaches rightly and teaches rightly and, and believes all the right things. 
that we just let this other stuff fall by the wayside and think we've got it going. And God would say, no, listen, I have this against you. Right? We forget that the church should be not just orthodox, not just enduring, but our greatest source of passion and joy and excitement and of love. So how do we get it back? What do we do? This is where, as a preacher, I love this letter. Because normally, in the course of sermon prep, as you study a text, you get to this question of, so what? How do we work on moving past what, what God is calling us to move past? How do we pick ourselves up? How do we uh, kind of fall under the grace of Christ and allow him to shape us? How do we actually practically do these things and the job of the preacher is to look at the text and go, how do, we, how do I give my, you know, my, my folks a three-point, well, do this, damn, 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 and then you're done. Just one thing after another, and then you can be, you can be moved on. And, and, and in Revelation chapter 2, God actually gives us a wonderful three-point system for how we move beyond this type of monotony, mundaneness, lack of joy, lack of love. He actually tells us exactly what we are to do. And it's in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. There's three things there, right? First, remember from where you have fallen. See, initially when we come to know Christ, it's this euphoric experience. And why it's so euphoric is because we come to understand the gospel for the first time. And what we realize is that we were so wretched and so worthless and so beyond repair and so damaged and so incapable of any kind of good or right in the world. And then we come to, this, to, the, to, the, to the conclusion and we understand through the Spirit that God is the one who picks us up and makes us new and washes our sin away so that instead of scarlet we are white as snow and, and we live this mountaintop and we just rejoice because we know how wretched we are. I remember the first weeks and months of, of life in Christ getting up and just with this pep in my step because I'm like, man, I stink, but the Lord has a thing for me today. He's woken me up for some reason, and it's good, and it's grand, and he's going to do a mighty thing through me, and I can't believe that I get to live life under the gospel of Christ. I am so not worthy, but he is so good. And then that excitement just starts to fade away because we forget. We don't live every morning when we get up with the understanding of who we are apart from Christ. We forget, we get comfortable in the whiteness, in the snowy whiteness that God has bestowed upon us. And the more we go on, the more we start to subconsciously feel like we're, we're doing something to earn the whiteness and the cleanliness. Right? And so we just become used to it. This grace that once made us feel alive and you know, more, more alive than even your wedding day could, <laughs> is now just, a, oh, yeah, Christ covers my sin. That's great. I got to go to work. Right? And so the first thing that God calls us to do is to actively seek to remember. We have to remember our sin. And through it, we remember God's mercy and love. We have to meditate on the gospel. We have to meditate every day you should remind yourself. Stick a post-it on your headboard or your mirror in the bathroom and remind yourself that without God's mercy, you would be dead. You wouldn't get up. 
I could stop preaching because apart from Christ's mercy, all of you would be keeling over right now alongside of me. But we're alive to him. We have to remember what we were so that we can appreciate and have a jubilance and a joy and a passion and a fervor about who in Christ we now are. We just have to. We remember. James Hamilton, who writes commentary in the preaching of the, of the Word series for Revelation, says this. Maybe you feel, this brings it kind of to the church application, maybe you feel that the things your church needs from you are a burden. You turn and the nursery comes around so often you keep waiting for someone else to wipe up the tables after the potluck, but no one else ever steps up or forward. So the solution for these problems is not for the church to hire workers. Right? So we don't have to be bothered with that problem, nor, in my opinion, is it for us to stop doing these troublesome potlucks. The solution is for us to think on the gospel. When we meditate on the gospel, we become people who want to lay down our lives for others the way Jesus laid down his life for us. We become people who want to serve others the way the king has served us. The gospel makes us want to love other people the way we have been loved. The reminder of the gospel is what stirs in us a love because we experience and feel every morning anew the love of Christ. You should get up every morning and the first thing in your, on your mind should be, I am wretched and worthless and useless and sinful and stained. But this morning, as I arise, Christ has made me clean. So none of that applies anymore. Let me go get my morning coffee. And live with that reality churning in my head as I go about my day. The second thing he says is to repent. The word repentance gets thrown a lot in scripture, or in, in culture. To repent, we think, oh, I ask for forgiveness. We pray a prayer of repentance. And then we have a proclamation of forgiveness where I get up as your pastor and I remind you of the grace of Christ that's forgiven you for all the things you just silently confessed in your heart. Right? But repentance is a word far bigger than I'm sorry. Repentance involves a turn. When we hear God calling us to repent, it means that we were doing these things and walking in this direction and Christ enters us and we, we ask yes for forgiveness, but we don't keep walking and asking for forgiveness. We stop, we ask for forgiveness, we ask for a changed heart, and then we turn and move in an utterly different direction. For us to repent means for us to shape and to change, to lay things down, to give things up, and to pick up and put on other things. It's a change fundamentally in who we are. And so when he says repent, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, if you want to have this love, if you want to experience as an individual and as a church the joy, the passion, the fervor, the love of what it means to be Christ, to be in him, then you have to live a life of repentance. And so maybe if you feel like you've lost your love, you have to turn away from some of the stuff that makes you lose sight of Jesus. And maybe even some of the stuff that's not bad stuff, but just causes you to, to, to lose sight of him. Maybe you turn away from entertainment that dulls your desire to read his word. Because we, we watch so much TV and television shows and movies that when we read the Bible, it's kind of boring in comparison to the constant stream of entertainment that we have going in our lives. Maybe it means you got to cut down a little bit on that stuff. Maybe you turn away from stuff that steals your time away from prayer and the reading of his word. Maybe there's good things that you're doing. Maybe you have hobbies. They're great hobbies. But man, you, you cut it in half a little bit. 
Maybe you just got to get up a little earlier or go to bed a little later. Whatever it is, you repent and you turn towards the things of God and you press into him. You turn away from the excuses you've made not to spend time with the Lord. You put away things that matter less for things that matter more. And you just commit to a repentance of the way that you're living your life and you say, enough, these things got to go. I got to press into the realities of who God is. I spend more time in prayer with him, in fellowship with him. I got to get, get, get quiet with God every once in a while on a daily basis. Maybe you go home today and you say, what are the 15 minutes a day that I'm going to take every single day, come what may? Right? Well, I got to get up for work early this week. Well, you get up 15 minutes earlier. It's not going to kill you, I promise you. Trust me, I get woken up really early all the time. I'm still here. You'll be okay. We can't just feel sorry and remember our sin. We have to actually battle with it. Or you're never going to find the love and the joy that you're seeking. Third, do the works you did at first. That sounds so simple, but go back and do the works you did at first. He's calling on the church to just go back and do those things. And it sounds like, like a very kind of naive thing for God to say. You want to go back to feeling the way you felt? Just go do the things you did back then. Well, I don't know how to... I'm not, I'm not feeling like doing those things. I remember, yeah, I remember 10 years ago, I was super involved in, in this aspect of the church. But I don't know, I just I don't know if I feel like doing that right now. I'm tired, I'm older. I don't know. I remember when I started in youth ministry, my first job, um, I, I was connecting with some, some friends in ministry, and I felt woefully inadequate. Like it's that, you know, you're moving from like education where it's like theoretical to where you got actually got to kind of deal with it. You know, you show up in a room and at the time I was a youth pastor. So, you know, you have like 30 kids in a room looking at you and you're like, like a deer in headlights going, I don't know how to affect these. You know, and you feel this inadequacy. I remember my friend gave me great advice and it sounds trivial at first, but he said, he said, fake it till you make it. How many of you have started jobs and someone you're just overwhelmed and someone says, just fake it till you make it. Now, now what, I, what he didn't mean is, you know, pretend to be something you're not, you know, fake that you got it together when you don't. But he said, listen, sometimes you just got to jump in and do. You might not feel like you want to or like you can do it, but just, just get in there. Just do things. You spend time counseling people in marriages that are in a rut. You say, well, go out on a date. Well, I don't feel like being on a date with him or her. Well, tough cookies, just go on one. And then another one, and then another one. And guess what? By the third or fourth time, you're going to be feeling it more than you were the first. Sometimes we have to do before we can feel. And so the Lord says, listen, just go do the things you did at first. When you felt passionately connected to the gospel, when you felt like you as an individual or us as a church were, were, were thriving and doing things well, where were you involved? What were you doing? Who are you talking to? You don't feel connected to the body? Don't go home and and, and moan about it. Find a church member that you haven't talked to in a while. Today, after church, invite him to lunch. I'm going to challenge you to do that. I would love if there was like 13 different lunches represented in this room. That people afterwards just are just going out. Two or three couples or, or individuals. 
Just connect with one another. Just do it. Well, I'm not feeling it. I'm tired. I... Just do. Just do the things that you remember doing when you felt the way that you wanted to be feeling. The Lord tells us, listen, remember who you were. Repent of the things that are getting in the way. And then do. And the feeling will come. A lot of us don't think that way. It's like exercise. If you haven't worked out in like a year, that first time, you don't want to. You're not feeling it. But every time, a little more. Sometimes we just have to exercise our spiritual muscles a little bit by doing things that we're supposed to do. God knows that when we as a church get involved and love one another, that growth occurs, that passion grows. Because we're meant to do that. We're designed to do that. We're designed to, to, to mesh with one another and rub, rub together as, as God's people. And so as you start to do that, you'll start to feel it more and more and more and more. But you have to take the leap. Jump into a new area of service in the church. Get involved somewhere you've never been involved before. Right? Maybe there's a ministry in this church that something's on your heart and you're saying, yeah, we don't, our church doesn't have that though. Maybe the Lord's calling you to start something. Walk up to me afterwards. You know, I, I really wish we had a ministry to so-and-so. Great. Are there others? Go get coffee with them this week. Tell me what you come up with. Can't wait to talk to you. Right? But you got to take the leap. You got to move forward. And so we remember the source of our love. We repent and take active steps to turn away. And then we jump into doing the things that we once did when we were passionate and feeling new. Now, how seriously does God take this command? Here's the second half of verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is back to the lampstand. What's the lampstand? The churches. What is Jesus saying? If you don't take this seriously, I will come remove your lampstand. What Jesus is saying is no less than, listen, if you can't get this, if you don't, if you don't heed these words, if you don't listen to me, like, that's a serious business. I, I will unchurch you. Don't think I won't take your church and blow it up. I can build a new one down the road. Jesus tells us, if you can't get this together, and it's not a matter of him even really having to do a whole lot of lampstand removing, because if we don't get this, then really we're not a church to begin with. Any church that lacks love amongst the brotherhood and the sisterhood, true, deep, abiding love, and passion for one another and a commitment to one another, any church that lacks that isn't a church. I don't care how good your doctrine is and how enduring you think you are. Right? I can, I can tell you there are plenty of churches with great doctrine and endurance. And they have endured all the way until the last three people are sitting on the pews. That building could burn down and there'd be three people having communion on the rubble. And there'd be no love among any of them. If the church doesn't have love, it has nothing. It's the first thing. The first thing. God says it, and we ought to buy into it and believe that. And so he concludes his letter, as I said, with a compliment sandwich. And he does remind them, he says, listen, just in case you're wondering, I do value the doctrine that you have. As a matter of fact, you kind of have rejected the Nicolaitans, and the Nicolaitans are bad people. 
The Nicolaitans were a group of, of, of believers who, they, they stem from the, the thoughts and the, the, the doctrine of Nicholas. Nicholas was one of the deacons that was ordained in Acts early on, right? He was one of the, one of the folks, among with Stephen and others, that was a deacon. But he kind of went off the deep end. And the Nicolaitans were a people that, you know, he had a pagan background. And they were kind of very okay blending all of the beliefs together. So they took their Christian and they took their pagan and they took their occult and they just kind of let it all reside in one big pile of spirituality, so to say. And they were also a people that were marked by lavish indulgence. They just kind of partook of whatever they wanted. They lived, they lived in the world, doing the things they wanted to do. So they were in every way opposite to a gospel of self-denial and singular devotion. And so God hates the Nicolaitan thought. And so he commends them. And he gives them that last little compliment, just in case they feel really down about themselves. He says, listen, I do really value your doctrine. As a matter of fact, some of the churches we're going to talk about next are the opposite. They have the love, but not the doctrine. And they're going to get it just like you got it. <laughs> but love matters. You have to have it. And then he ends his book with this conclusion that he gives every single time. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because listen, if you're wise, if you've got a shred of, of wisdom in you, if you've got ears, hear what I say. Don't go home and fire up the grill and stop thinking about it. Don't take that nap and just forget about the words that you heard read to you just now. You better heed. And if you do, here's a promise. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. We're given nothing but eternal life and glory as a result. But the Lord calls us to obedience. Right? Letters of Revelation can be very, very challenging. They're hard things to wrestle with. But they're good. They speak to us as Christians. They speak to us as a church. They remind us of what God values first rather than what we value first. My hope and prayer is that they would challenge us as people and as, as a church, to, to move deeply and more fervently into love and care and goodness with one another, that we might commune more deeply than we ever have before. Right? Whether it's gathering to hear missionaries speak, gathering to study his word, or gathering to watch the Akron rubber ducks do their thing. That we might just be a people that, that love one another, that care for one another, that are in each other's lives and each other's business. As God calls us to, because as we've heard and as we've read, it's not an option. It's not an add-on to the church life. It's the DNA of who we are, or at least who we ought to be. Right. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you care so deeply, so lovingly, so tenderly, so fervently for your church. That you don't just shower us with love and affection and, and attaboys, but that when we need to be jolted and reminded that you are willing to do so, Lord, we thank you for this book of Revelation, that as you set up what is about to be a vision of the end times and how you will bring your promises to fruition, you start by preparing your church for that time. And Lord, so we pray as Revelation goes from chapter 1 and 2 and 3 in this preparation to showing us what comes at the end that you, as you prepared the early seven churches and those surrounding them, might also prepare us. 
Lord, we, we beg of you that as we hear these letters and heed their words, that we might evolve and shift and grow as a church so that when we get to the times of Revelation 4 all the way to the end, and those things come to pass and you come back, we might be ready. We might be a church marked by these things so that when you come, you might recognize us as your bride and that we might be ready for the wedding supper of the Lamb. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the grace and the mercy that you give us each and every morning anew. Be with us. We love you and praise you. And all God's people said, Amen.